there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. If we can get a little metatextual, Winston Smith began keeping his secret diary on April 4th in George Orwell's 1984, which I actually used to think was science fiction. Thriller sat at the top of the charts for 37 straight weeks. That is amazing. What finally knocked it out of the number one spot? The Footloose soundtrack. For the first time ever, U.S. astronauts attempted an in-space satellite repair, and the Challenger crew actually managed to successfully return the SolarMax satellite to service. And in what was unquestionably the biggest story of the month, Dr. Jay Levy and his team announced the discovery of the AIDS virus, finally giving name to a rising international crisis that would change the face of the decade that was just starting to swing in April of 1984. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McWheeney, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, how are you today? I am ready. It's April. It's 1984. We just got off our biggest episode ever, and it might be our reference quality episode. Like when people say, what episode should I start with? I might start telling them March 84. Part of it is the variety. And what we're seeing right now is the the 80s kind of really start to assert their personality and become the 80s that we recognize and we talk about. Uh, Real quick, before we get started, I wanted to once again take the time to thank the people who already support us on Patreon and encourage the rest of you to Give it a try for a month. There is so much bonus material there now with such a great range of guests, with a great range of topics. I feel like there is an alternate show that's happening over there, and I'm really excited by it. So I want you guys to check it out if you haven't. Scott? I've been waiting for so long. I mean, there aren't many truly historical landmark films of this year, really. And I think it's important that we look back and nail down the exact moment that we realized Rick Springfield was a movie star. Rick Springfield, in his motion picture debut. Stand up! He met her by accident. I feel terrible about this. I'll be glad to buy another car. You're not insured. Two people from two separate worlds. As different as two people could be. I mean, you make me crazy. I feel like my life is out of control. Maybe too different for their love to last. Hard to hold. Rated PG. Now playing at theaters everywhere. Check newspapers for locations and showtimes. I'm going to share a joke with our audience that I tweeted, and it unexpectedly took off. (laughs) The joke was, I can't help but think that Rick Springfield would have had a much better chance with Jesse's girl if he knew her actual name. I just was reading the other day an oral history of Battlestar Galactica. 
I swear to God, this connects. But they were talking about the, how they cast the original Glenn Larson. Oh, well, he's in it. Right. I know how it connects. He's in the pilot episode. Right. I guess he was part of a program at Universal where they hired actors. They would put them under contract for a certain amount of time for a certain amount of appearances per year and whatever they told them. And so Springfield was one of these young actors who was in the same group, the same class as Hatch and Benedict and some of the other guys. You know, for years, I think Universal tried to figure out where to use him, and clearly acting was on the radar from the start for him. And then he took off as a pop star, and so this movie feels like both those things colliding. Like, he's playing a pop star, but we're going to finally give him a movie, and it's even from Universal, so maybe they're just burning a contract out. But this was as close as they ever came to giving him all the shot he could get. Yeah, there's a reason he wasn't a movie star. We have a popular pop star who fancies themselves an actor, and we put them in the lead role. We'll get to a lot of these uh, throughout the decade. Some of them are, are surprisingly decent. Some of them are awesome, like Disorderlies. But this one is just like, it feels like somebody dug a screenplay that no one produced from 1942 about a petulant rock star and the even more petulant woman he tries to woo. It's not romantic. It's, there's no real drama. It literally feels like, how can we get six Rick Springfield songs into a soundtrack album? Oh, we have to make a movie. Oh, okay, let's make the movie. And that's how it came about. Right before we started recording, I was talking with Bobby about Star is Born. And, you know, the, the new version is Star is Born. It's exactly what you think it is. And there's certain stories that have been told a thousand times. Real quick, how is it? Five, on a five-star scale, how is the Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper? I'd say like three and a half, four stars. I think it's really well made. It's as authentically felt a manipulative movie as you're going to see this year. Like, oh, boy. That's a qualified compliment. Drew, do you know who wrote Hard to Hold? It wasn't Stanford Sherman, but it's, it was my uh, nemesis, the gentleman who wrote Footloose. Oh, okay. That's who you go to if you want something mindless and facile related to music, this guy. But my point in bringing up Star is Born is this is that same formula, which is it's so hard to be a star, and I'm going to meet somebody, and you're going to come into my world, and then we're going to clash because you don't understand what it's like in the lights. And, and the difference here is that she has no interest in this world. She just wants to date him. She's terrible in this movie. Janet Elber is her name? Elber? And it's a thankless I, I, role. They write her as... She, she felt like she's playing Catherine Hepburn the whole movie in a way. And she never really thaws out. And, and it's the problem with Springfield as well, is that nobody in this movie is behaving like an actual adult would behave in this situation. Like, he is so brain damaged as a rock star that, Oh, I got locked out of a stadium and I have no pants on. Ha <laughs> ha. Is that your official Rick Springfield impression? It is. It's pretty accurate, isn't it? All right, let's log that into the Drew Impression Gallery, because I like Anytime it. Anytime Rick Springfield has to come back. Yep. Did you notice who directed this? I know it's Larry Pierce. He directed the, His last movie was Love Child. That's like a sincere drama, a well-made, well-wrought tearjerker. I think what you're going to find is that Love Child was the exception, because if you look at The Other Side of the Mountain, or if you look at the movie he's got coming later this decade, Wired... Larry Pierce is a criminal. And the biggest problem with a film like this is if the music doesn't really sell you, then you're waiting for nothing. You're waiting for them to get to what's going to feel like filler. And every concert scene in this is interminable. They sound like songs that were turned down for Barney. They're that simplistic. Like, let's go rock. Clap, clap, clap. Let's go rock. I mean, it really, it's not just simplistic. It sounds like children's music. It's atrocious. If you... 
want to see Rick Springfield's butt, hey, grab a glass of wine and have at it. But otherwise, it is almost unbearable. When character actor hunting is the literal most fun you can have with a movie. I'm going to guess you're going to play some character actor hunting with this next one, because certainly, at least with the adult cast, there are some faces to pick out. This is a really weird children's film called Kid Co. This is our chance to start making the big bucks. The kids had cooked up worse schemes. I haven't recovered from last summer's losses. But never a better one. Can't be that simple. That's what they said about the guy who invented the frisbee. Their horses make all the fertilizer. Me, you are competition. And they make all the money. The power of advertising. Until it all backfired. Sort of. But when the kids get their day in court, watch out, IBM. So are we going to stick together and fight? With our last ounce of manure. Kid Go. It's about the sweet smell of success. From Ron Maxwell, director of Little Darlings and The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. Written by a gentleman named Ben Tramer. Isn't that the guy who got killed in Halloween that they keep talking about? Yeah, yeah. I, if only... <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis had been with him. But this guy wrote without warning and later co-created Saved by the Bell. Wow. To give a really sad picture of just how insane I was about movies and anything movie related, I ordered from the book fair, the little Scholastic book fair order form that you would get, I ordered the Kidco novelization. Wow. Scott Schwartz plays a kid who is a hustler Scott Schwartz, who you may remember from The Toy and A Christmas Story, this would be his final feature. After this, he uh, had a career in porn. Turbulent life. Turbulent. I I know this was an HBO staple for about a year and a half, probably around 86, 85. I had never seen this until last week. Like I said, read the novelization, never saw the film. And my first impression is this. Scott Schwartz is one of those super unnatural hyper adult kid actors to build a movie around it's off-putting he is an unpleasant lead the kid who plays his sister nene oh she is a delight she is hilarious in every single moment she has in the movie she's really funny she manages to make a lot out of a little and the movie itself is this hustler kid who gets an idea after his dad basically says you can't uh hustle the entire school for poker money And he decides to uh, go into the manure business for a local golf course and then expands to a number of other businesses and goes head-to-head with the only manure company in town who then tries to put them out of business using the courts, turning this into essentially a Kitty Capra film about shit. Uh, We need to come up with a term for these types of comedies, which are very rarely laugh-out-loud funny but are still amiable enough to hold your attention. Because I don't think... I laughed out loud more than once or twice in this movie, but I was into the story. I was curious to see how the kids would win. It reminds me of like a feature-length Little Rascals movie in a way. It's also very Reagan era, and it's a little right-wing in terms of sort of the the pro-business take and things. It is a relic of its moment, um, but not a terrible one. Now we can move on to something that is terrible. (laughs) Uh, I believe that... God. If you look at today's, say, white male politicians, say, 65 and older, this is what became of the preppies. Robert Chip Thurston III will inherit $50 million if... Inspiration in dealing with... 
He survives the weekend. You know perfectly well how to take care of yourself. Think of all the rotten, waspy, white guys who are villains in teen sex comedies. Did they not all grow up to be McConnell and Orrin Hatch and Lindsey Graham? Did they not all grow up to be those guys? They, they literally are the bad guys from our 80s movies now running the world. And going back and looking at this stuff, it's amazing how normalized so much of this is. And we're going to get into the next couple of months. We got a whole fistful of these. I've watched about three of them in the last day. This one is barely above porn in terms of production value. I'm not even talking content, just production value. It's skeezy. And it's a Playboy Channel production. It was the first Playboy Channel production. Apparently, you know, some brains over at Playboy thought, oh, my God, Porky's and, and losing it. And Playboy should be in that business. It could have been a great idea if they hadn't cut every single corner, if they had actually hired a decent writer and a decent director instead of going to Chuck Vincent, Ugh. who a B-movie machine, he, he would later give them Hollywood hot tubs. It's a Three Stooges premise for a movie. And the more, more interesting than anything about this movie is the legal battle that MGM fought over the word preppies because they had a movie called The Last American Preppy, which yeah. later became Making the Grade, which we'll get to next month. Between this and that, this is the, the introduction of sort of that cultural icon, the preppy. And the book had been before this. The preppy handbook had come out before this. But it takes a little while for stuff to trickle into movies. I barely could tolerate this one. This is um, ugly from start to finish. And if you feel like you got too much production value from Porky's, then yes, Preppy's is for you. And what's crazy is that there was a moment where Preppy was not a bad thing. Preppy was something that people wanted to be, and they wanted it was an identity that people chased, and people would go to the store and they would buy their Preppy look. And we'll get to some movies in which Preppy characters, usually played by what he was, Andrew McCarthy, are are slightly more interesting. But this movie is atrocious, and I don't care that it's made by Playboy, and I don't care that it's barely, you know, mostly softcore porn. It's not funny. If you're not going to build a single joke into it, then I'm not going to bother calling it a comedy. Yeah, it's uh, trauma style at best. Yeah. And now, over to Drew McWeeny with his new segment, Horsey Horse Double Feature, in which he'll review two movies about horsies and how they relate to men. Up first, an obscure John Hurt film called Champions. Today on Horsey Horsey, we're going to be talking about the true life story of jockey Bob Champion. Bob Champion, of course, played by John Hurt in this film. Here on NPR, we talk very softly about these films because that's the kinds of films they are. Talk about a mild-mannered movie about cancer. Champions is a, a true story, so I'm not going to knock the guy's actual journey. I think that's a terrific story. I think the film itself is... It's like somebody set the VCR on slow motion. Like, it's playing back just a little bit slower than it should. Drew, watching this movie, I I imagine that you and I, because we've covered many film festivals together, I imagine that you and I are like at Toronto Film Festival in 1984, and we got like a block between two good movies, two interesting movies, and like, I look at you and I'm like, John Hurt? And you're like, all right, John Hurt, let's do it. Edward Woodward's in it, I think. Oh, and, and a young Kirstie Alley, and my favorite, Ben Johnson as Burley Cox. That's his name! (laughs) I know. And can I say that it is 
odd watching the love scene between Kirstie Alley and John Hurt. It's just a weird love scene. John Hurt doesn't play a lot of, like, love scene love scenes. And this one feels jammed in for box office sake or for, well, we got to get Kirstie Alley into a bed somehow. But it's just weird, and it doesn't work. I think my favorite John Hurt love scene happens uh, on the kitchen table in Alien. And look, John Irvin, who directed this, the last movie we talked about of his, uh, well, Ghost Story, obviously, but the movie before that, The Dogs of War, Dogs of War is this fucking angry, weird, that feels like an actual movie like somebody had their heart in. This thing, as sincere as it is, is just asleep, man. The horse stuff is incidental, too, by the way. That's the the other big problem that I have with the movie is if you are suckered into seeing champions because you love horses, well, then brace yourself because there's a lot of time between the horse racing and then when we do finally get to the horse racing, it's shot in a fairly uninspired and uninvolving manner. We will return to Horsey Horse Movie Horse after this announcement. Thank you so much for listening to 80s All Over. Your patronage is very, very much appreciated. But if you'd like to take that patronage to the next logical step, please visit patreon.com slash 80s all over and join at the three tiered levels available to you where a multitude of commentaries, interviews, and very special episodes can all be yours for the low, low price of $5 a month or a maximum $15 a month, allowing you access to very special moments. Like this. Yeah, my, uh, uh, my good friend James Rocky is a uh, Canadian born and he is a very proper gentleman. So when he wants to express umbrage in, in an extreme way, he says, shut up, Melon Farmer. And this. The stuff we're interested in is stuff that matters to you guys that you don't hear everybody talk about. That would be none other than Hunk. 1987's Hunk. <laughs> no? <laughs> you wrote, wait, you actually wrote down Hunk? <laughs> I saw it in the theater, man. And this. Drew, if Charles comes up and says hunk, yeah. remember that one, Charles? Yeah, it's on my list. I'm crossing it off right now. Uh, <laughs> shit. It's <laughs> really hoping to get you it. Oh, well. Patreon.com slash 80s all over. Do join, won't you? And now, back to Horsey Horse Double Horse feature with Drew McQueenie. Our next movie is also based on a true story. I am, of course, talking about the beloved Farlap. Now, Drew, for years, I thought that Farlap was a, a take on, like, the word far and lap, as in a horse running laps. But no, it's actually an Asian name that means thunderclap at dawn, I believe is what they say. Now, Champions was dull, and I kept losing interest. This one was a little dull, but I had liked it. It's the difference between, like, something that feels artificial and something that feels authentic. The period uh, design in this film, it's like 1920s in Australia. That alone was impressive to me. I had known, I know that this was a celebrated, well-regarded uh, import, and I was able to get over my innate boredom of all things horse racing related, and uh, I actually enjoyed this one. 
for me, the huge difference between the two of them is that this is about a famous horse and about the world of horse racing and about how unlikely a horse he was in the first place. And the entire idea of how you bet on unlikely horses, both as a breeder or a trainer or an owner, and also as a fan. I like the glimpse it gives of sort of how he became beloved, of how he became this somewhat legendary figure in the sport, and why that caught the public's attention. I think the film does a nice job of that. I like that uh, this is Tom Berlinson from Man From Snowy River. In the early 80s, it feels like there's that alternate Australian-New Zealand cinema that's happening that I really enjoyed. And I always enjoyed the movies that would come over, and it felt like there was a cast of faces that I only saw in those movies. And it was always exciting to see them when I got to see the next one. And I did see Farlap when I was younger, and I remember enjoying it back then. To me, this would have looked like a Hallmark card, and I didn't even have the uh, attention span to even read a Hallmark card, let alone watch a movie like this. It's earnest and, well, and heartfelt and a little slow, but this one I liked. So, We'll be back on Horsey Horse Movie Horse in a few years with Richard Dreyfus in Let It Ride. <laughs> this next movie is one that I was fascinated by as a kid precisely because I couldn't see it, and now that I have seen it, I'm not sure how I feel about House of the Long Shadows. What lives in this house? No one would want to live in Balpatar Manor. What stalks these halls? It's a cursed place. Yes, I saw the movie. What hides in these shadows? And who is playing that piano? <coughs> Welcome to the House of the Long Shadows. Vincent Price, that's me. Christopher Lee. Peter Cushing, John Carradine, and Desi Arnaz in a Golan Globus production of a Pete Walker film, House of the Long Shadows, from Canon releasing. House of the Long Shadows, it's got a great cast. It's boring as shit. And here's the main problem. I know, it's Desi Arnaz Jr. And it's infuriating that Desi Arnaz Jr., who's a drip in the movie. My biggest irritation with the film is that if you're going to bring these horror stars together, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, John Carradine, four genuinely iconic, familiar faces who have this body of genre work behind them, pick somebody's work that you're going to nod to. This doesn't feel like any of their work. It doesn't feel like anybody's movies. What's frustrating is it's about a, 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 an obnoxious novelist who's given a bet by his editor that if he could spend 24 hours in, in this haunted mansion and write a book in a day, okay, sure, I can't write a film review in a day, asshole, but... Fine, that's the premise. Dickhead writer has to go off to a, a mansion and he's very skeptical about uh, otherworldly things. And these oddballs, these creepy oddballs keep showing up and he realizes that there's a lot more backstory to this mansion than he, blah, 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 blah. It really isn't even a horror film. It is the uh, umpteenth adaptation of George M. Cohan's play, Seven Keys to Baldpate. And Baldpate would be the name of the manor. The best thing I could say about House of Long Shadows is that with that cast... It generated a fantastic one-sheet poster, and uh, any horror fan should be proud to have House of the Long Shadows poster on their wall because the poster does what the movie doesn't. It gets four iconic horror stars together and makes them look cool. And it feels like your grandfather hired these four horror legends to come to your party and scare you, but he didn't tell them how to scare you, and so these guys just kind of show up and stand around at some point, you go, so how's it going? And they go, eh, it's okay. It's fine. 
it's infuriating. It is an infuriating waste of these these. Pete Walker, I think this was his last film, not well put together. Uh, and it's very disappointing because even Ghost Story, which has a lot of iconic uh, genre stars in it, and that's also kind of dull, but that has a lot more of a pulse than this one does. Drew, let's just move on to easily the most decipherable film of the month, Conquest. From a place beyond time comes a terrifying challenge beyond imagination. Conquest. Two men joined forces in a struggle for power in a realm of fear. Feel the power. Accept the challenge of Conquest. This is directed by uh, iconic... Italian horror maestro Lucio Fulci, who gave us The Gates of Hell and Zombie and, and lots of good splatter stuff. And this was him dipping his feet into the co- kind of like Conan, but also with a horror vibe to it. And I swear to God, if you were to Google the VHS cover or poster for this movie, Conquest 1983, because that's when it came out in Italy. You tell me, as a 14-year-old, you would not rent that movie immediately. Drew, what's on that cover? Everything that you want from fantasy art. It's the naked lady. It's the monster. It's the blood red sky. It's the, it's, and it's painted and it's awesome. And it's honestly, it feels like that is what the movie is meant to be is that Fulci just went, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's going to be fantasy and it's going to be a lot of it. And, you know, at the beginning of the movie, they go on a quest to the land of smoke pots and there's lots of people in costumes and it's, Nearly impossible to keep up with. And yet, on a put a Pink Floyd album on and let this fucking crazy thing play, Conquest is not unwatchable. Conquest has this weird, dreamy, fucked up vibe to it. Of all the mostly Italian uh, Conan knockoffs, like your Deathstalkers and your A-Tours and your whatnot, this one is less decipherable, but... If somebody were to invite you to a weed party, and what that means is it's a party where when you show up, you have to put at least an eighth of weed onto a giant plate with everyone else's weed. And then everybody smokes it and plays board games while they watch movies on mute. Conquest would be on that list. (laughs) Exploitation start to finish. Lots of gore, lots of monster violence and vaguely cannibalistic violence. And I don't regret spending the 100 minutes with it. All right. And you know what? Kind of in the same vein. Let's just move over to our next wacky do fucking B movie with a lying VHS cover. It's time for (laughs) they're playing with fire. If your English professor looked like this. You wouldn't mind staying after school, doing odd jobs, even inviting her to your room. Eric Brown, the star of Private Lessons, is playing with fire when he falls into the hands of Playboy sensation Sybil Danny. But he thinks it's worth it, wouldn't you? They're playing with fire, rated R. What genre is this movie, Scott? Better question. What genre did you think this movie was prior to last week? (laughs) Not this genre, that's for sure. It's never funny. It never tries to be funny. It's not a comedy. This is about when distributors realized this crap doesn't need to play a lot of theaters because HBO will buy this now. We have a new outlet for our junk. 
as long as it played some shitbox theater somewhere, it was a theatrical release, and then it was qualified for HBO or Showtime. So, speaking of sex crimes, this is a movie about a woman who is a teacher who seduces an underage boy and convinces him to break into her husband's mother's house, scare his mother and her mother at the same time, and scare them into wanting to be put away in an old age home so that the teacher's husband will inherit all of the mo- I watched the whole fucking thing. I'm- you are doing so well right now. I am rooting for you because you are making sense of this bullshit. Go for it. Uh, this is literally the first like 25 minutes. I have never seen a Cinemax level boob flick that is so knee deep in unnecessary plot, plot, plot. They have a lot of plot. This is like a trilogy in one movie. It's insane. <laughs> okay, so then you realize it's not a comedy, and then you realize, oh, she's setting him up, so it's probably some kind of a film noir. I get it. Yeah, no, no, no. Then somebody comes in and shoots an old lady in the back of the head with a shotgun. I'm sorry, what? And then other people start, other people start getting stabbed all over what? the place on a college campus. So now... It's a non-comedy film noir slasher film, but we don't know who the killer is, so it's also a mystery. Anyway. My experience as I watched it is, is it's very much a process of, what? I got another one for you, Drew. Ready? Where'd that Santa Claus thing come from? <laughs> right? What's, what's that? Imagine, imagine you're watching, like, Jaws, and all of a sudden, five Smurfs run across the screen. You're like, what... What happened? What just happened? It turns into then a Scooby-Doo murder mystery where there's a big reveal and it's so fucking ridiculous. And yet, there's really only one person it can be because of the way this film is made. Every other speaking character has been killed. (laughs) So like at the end of it, you're like, damn, who could it be? (laughs) Oh, right. The only one left. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's not dead. Um It is trashy. It's, this is this is where exploitation, the rubber really meets the road, because all it is is her. Sybil Danning is striking, and I get it. I get why every exploitation filmmaker in the world wanted to work with her. But she has to carry a lot of weight in this movie. And like you said, there's so much plot that she is given to just have to contend with in scene after scene. Nobody could, nobody would look good with the mouths full of exposition that these people have to throw at each other just to make this fucking thing work. She's asked to express lust and commitment to somebody who looks like they got thrown out of Chuck E. Cheese because he didn't have a kid with him. (laughs) Eric Brown in this movie is not only not a romantic leading man. Every line is like this. His ex-girlfriend keeps asking him why she won't talk to her. And he's like, go away, Janie. In any other movie would only be in the movie so the asshole jocks could pull his underwear out of his pants without taking them off In this kind of like gorgeous woman entices an unwitting dummy man into doing something illegal. Well, I don't know who the hero of the movie is. And the movie doesn't know who the hero is because it keeps changing its mind over the course of the film. Is he the lead character? Is she the lead character? Are we supposed to like her? Is she awful? I don't know, and neither do they. You know what's awful? Uh, Fort Lauderdale is a zoo. It's full of millions of guys who are just looking for animal sex and debauchery. Exactly. That's why we're going. Four gorgeous girls on the way to where the boys are. (laughs) Where the girls are. That's where the boys are. Where even your wildest dreams come true. 
Where the Boys Are, 84. Rated R starts Friday, April 6th at a theater near you. Where the Boys Are is a remake of a 1960 beach comedy. So somebody had the idea of let's remake like a Frankie Avalon and Annette Bonicello type beach movie for the teen sex era. And the result is not the worst of the ones we've seen, but it sure isn't very good. The original actually had something to say about the way sexual mores were changing at the time and the way... Kids were becoming not only sexually active, but by putting themselves into these situations, there's a fairly interestingly handled date rape storyline in the 1961 that would have been really great to grapple with in the 1984 one, considering how insane 1984 beach culture really was. It was far more predatory and far more terrifying. So... By taking that storyline out and by making the film more sexually explicit, they almost made it an advertisement. Living in Florida in the 80s, I can tell you that the state changed because people started seeing these movies. People started seeing spring break films, and they started believing that you go to Florida, and when you go to Florida, you take your pants off when you drive across the state line, and you just start fucking everything. Whatever you see, you can fuck because it's Florida. That's how people treated the state from that point on. And it was because these movies advertised a more grotesquely, cartoonishly sexual carnival atmosphere than really existed. And then it sort of fed into itself. Then it became people came looking for it. And if they didn't find it, they were going to find it one way or another. And it really fed into an awful culture. So I look at something like Where the Boys Are 84, and I really don't enjoy the the way they chose to both crank the sexual explicitness up and also remove any real conversation there about the consequences thereof or even just the responsibility thereof. All right, Grandpa, it's a bad film. It's, you know, it is a bad, mindless teen sex romp with, with writing and directing that has no idea really how to make something funny. I will say that at this stage of the 80s, having a movie about four young people who drive down to Fort Lauderdale or what have you to get laid, at least this time it is women. At least somebody went, all right, we've seen a bunch of them in which it's a bunch of guys driving down to Florida. Can we at least do one where it's girls? It would feel a lot better if the movie had been written or directed by a woman. It might have been a better movie. The cast ain't great. Wendy Shall is the only one of the four who seems to get delivering a joke. She is funny. See, I think both Shaw and Lynn Holly Johnson, I think they're doing the characters they were hired to play very, very well. I think Lynn Holly Johnson is playing that. I'm more experienced than anybody else in the room, and I'm the one that's ahead of everybody. What she manages to do, and what I mean by appealing, is she somehow takes the smuttiest storyline and makes it so that even by the end of the film, she is not gross. She finds a way to play the worst material they hand her and still make it appealing. Wendy Shaw, I think, has the best written part and probably the, the most to do in the film. Uh, okay, now we move on to an all-but-forgotten sci-fi drama from 1984, obviously. Why do I keep doing that? Drew, let's break down how much I think you and I both like Fred Chapisi's Iceman. His origin is a mystery. All systems go. His existence is a miracle. That's brain activity. He survived 40,000 years in a world of ice and snow. Please, God. 
But how long can he last in a world of modern man? What's happened here is nothing compared to what's going to happen to him out there. Timothy Hutton, Iceman, rated PG. I went and saw this in the theater uh, in Memphis with my grandmother, and I took her to go see it. I was like, oh, I want to go. Uh, this one's going to be great. I'm really excited about this. And the only thing I remember from my theatrical experience is my sister not liking it, and there's kind of a cool um, tremor, let's say, at the end of the movie. It's a great visual cue, and I remember that so clearly. And I also remember Siskel and Ebert raving about the movie on their show. And I remember liking it quite a bit. And being really pulled into it and clicking with John Lone's performance. John Lone plays the unfrozen prehistoric man who they bring back to life and who they they try to connect to. And largely the film is about his relationship with Stanley Shepard, played by Tim Hutton, who is the anthropologist in charge of things. And it's one of those films, man, if you don't buy into this movie and you're sitting in the theater and you're just not clicking with it, you're going to bounce off and you start laughing at what it is, which is essentially it's a buddy picture about, hey, I'm, there's a caveman and I want to be his buddy. And they learn how to be buddies. And he sings Neil Young to him. It's all in the little details. It's all in how it's played. It's all in how John Lone is so alone, so so broken by the realization that whatever this is, wherever he's ended up and woken up and whoever these people are that come in and talk to him, it's fine. He's trying but he's never going to have his, he's done. It's a brilliant performance because we see a Neanderthal man who is confused by his surroundings. And this actor actually makes us get inside that head of what if I woke up and I was in a super futuristic world and I didn't even know literally up from down. I didn't know what a machine was. I didn't know what a person was. And he sells that so perfectly. I think that's that's a really astute way of looking at it. And I and and I don't think they sell it that way. I think the whole sales pitch is we've got a caveman. What are we gonna do with him? I, I don't give a shit about any of the office stuff and about tip, Lindsay Krauss arguing with Jimmy Thayer. I don't care. Everything to me that really works in this movie and everything that I, I walk away loving from this movie happens between Hutton and Lone. I don't know how he wasn't nominated for this movie. I honestly don't. But to me, the office stuff, some of it is a little dry. I'll give you that. But to me, a lot of that is not so much office stuff as it is the morality play of what is our responsibility? Are, are we supposed to free him? Are we allowed to dissect him? And what I think is really interesting about this movie is that in the hands of any other filmmaker or screenwriter, the outside world would be involved almost immediately. What's interesting to me about Iceman is that it starts just like the thing. I also love Joseph Summer, Danny Glover, David Strathairn, James Tolkien. There is a great cast in this movie. They're a good cast. It's just I, I think that a lot of times for me, I get tired of government people or arguing about things when the human drama is more interesting to me. It's beautifully directed by Fred Scapizzi, and his observational eye serves him well over all the films we're going to talk about of his. And... I think he is an underrated filmmaker. I think that his career, if you look at it over the long arc, reveals he's very careful when he picks material. And he doesn't always nail it. He doesn't always like knock one out of the ballpark. But I don't think he's ever picked a movie for, the, for a less than genuine reason. He feels like a guy who's drawn to material on a personal level. Now we move on to a Corbin-produced romantic drama uh, from the director of Slumber Party Massacre. He was uh, impressed with Amy Holden Jones' work on that film and decided to give her some money to make what she wanted. And what she wanted to make, seemingly, Drew, my research indicates she was inspired by Shoot the Moon, Jamie Lee Curtis in Love Letters. 
It's been nice to meet you, Mr. Andrews. Excuse me. Nice to meet you, too. I'm married. I figured. I want to be honest, I can't offer you much. I'm not asking for very much. The thing that you have to keep in mind about these kind of relationships is that if you don't feel something for the guy, you're going to get out. I know. Believe me, I know. Jamie Lee Curtis. James Keach. Love Letters. Jamie Lee Curtis was desperate to redefine herself by this point. She had already made enough horror films to realize that people weren't going to give her something different to do. They were just going to ask her to do the same thing every time. She wasn't willing to do that, and she was itching to do other things. So she took a role that is fairly sexually explicit. There's a lot of nudity in this, which was one of Corman's conditions for making the film. For Curtis, it's pretty blunt like it's yeah she does not look comfortable in those and and those moments are almost always jarring in tone too because the the movie's really more about the emotional stakes of being the other woman and little by little realizing that you cannot keep feelings out of it that you are going to catch feelings that you are going to need more and that the best stuff in the film is about the way she begins to intrude on the life of james keach she's wrong and she knows she's wrong. The way the film is framed is she's also discovered a package of love letters that her mother had been getting over the course of her life from uh, somebody that she had been in love with. And it had run during their entire marriage. So there's this whole other story as she's piecing together the story of her mom's infidelity and how much of it was active and how much of it was just through these letters and her dad gets his heart broken all over again and there's all that stuff. So there's these two sort of parallel things playing out. And most of the stuff in the movie that works is about the emotional violence in an affair. Uh, you want to talk about cashing in your chip, though. This is what I liked about Corman and what I really respect about him over the the long picture of his career is he made a lot of junk and he produced a lot of junk to keep the lights on. But when he liked you and when you did good for him and when you made him some money, he was willing to give you a break and let you try things. And the idea that yeah, slumber party massacre gives you room to do this. That's great. And that's my favorite thing about him. And really the reason that when he's gone, uh, Corman's name will always be remembered as a major, major part of this era of film. One of the most influential and admirable producers ever of all time. And I'm a big fan of Amy Jones. She got her start as an editor on uh, Hollywood Boulevard and Corvette Summer. Now, Love Letter is not a great film, but this was the stepladder she needed. After this, she did Made to Order, which was a decent hit. And then she did Mystic Pizza without this semi-forgettable very basic romantic drama, a good filmmaker might not have made any more movies. And I think for Jamie Lee Curtis, important as well, because it did put her on other directors' radar. And I think opened the door for her to do work that we'll see more of over the course of the decade where she wasn't restrained to one genre anymore. So now we move on to another film, kind of sad and kind of depressing, but if you want to see a clinic on fantastic acting, check out Christopher Kane's the Stone Boy. This is the story of a family whose lives are suddenly shattered by a series of unexpected events. A family forced to face the truth, discovering how far apart they really are. I'm the one turned y'all against him. I didn't do nothing. Robert Duvall, Frederick Forrest, Glenn Close, Wilford Brimley, and Jason Presson. 
the stone boy. So much love, so far apart. I want to get a hold of Joe Roth, uh, who I worked for at one point, because I want to ask him about a story that I've heard about this movie. The movie was evidently pulled after one week, and I cannot find any indication of why. This is a very simple movie about a young boy who's going out hunting with his teenage brother, accidentally shoots and kills him, and then the repercussions that it has on his family, his father and mother, as played by Robert Duvall and Glenn Close, and the immediate community. His grandfather, played fantastically by Wilford Brimley. Uh, this also has Mary Ellen Trainer, whom we love, Frederick Forrest, and a young Dean Cain. It is not a movie with many uh, surprises. It is about uh, sorrow and forgiveness and moving on in life. I like it very much, but it's a hard film to necessarily recommend because it is so dour. It's the kid's point of view. Largely, it is um, him having the experience of needing to figure out how he can talk to somebody because the guilt is overwhelming. He killed the brother that he loves so much, and it was a stupid accident. The way it's so easy to make one mistake one time and do the one thing wrong, and this happens. And I think the movie captures that well. And It has a very realistic where you'd be like, you know, you'd read it in the paper, God forbid, and you go, oh, how could a, a six-year-old kid shoot someone by accident? The way this film posits it, it's very believable, and I'm sure it happens very frequently, unfortunately. And what I like the most about the film is that the, the young boy, this is something so shocking and so alien to this child, he has no context for it. So he doesn't know, I think that's partially where the title comes from, is that he's stoic because he doesn't know, it doesn't compute. Literally, the, the film is just the journey to finding some sort of vocabulary to talk about it and figuring out who that can be. And he keeps, he's floundering. Like, you see this little kid really trying to reach out. Everybody's giving him permission. That's not the problem. The problem is he doesn't know how. And uh, Linda Hamilton shows up very late in the film in a very small role, but in a key role. And, uh, and I think a well-cast role, because there is something about that moment where that little boy finally breaks, and you've got to believe that at the right ear at the right moment. And so it really is the adult cast that you're talking about. You're, it's just him being passed from one person to another as they're all trying to find the way to get him to where he can open up again. Nicely done. Good film. We'll get to uh, Christopher Kane's other films uh, later in the decade. But now let's move on to a weird misfire from some filmmakers that I know Drew and I absolutely love, let us get a big spoon and dive into Jonathan Demme's Swing Shift. 1942, the war was taking the men. The factories were taking anybody. Kay Walsh is ready to serve her country. But is the country ready for her? Goldie Hawn, Kurt Russell, Swing Shift, rated PG. Starts Friday, April 13th. Please check newspapers for a theater near you. I found an article from Insight on Sound, I believe, that indicates Jonathan Demme's original cut was markedly superior and that Goldie Hawn's production company, who you know co-produced the film, took the film and with the studio's blessing in the 11th hour and kind of made it more of a Private Benjamin-esque Goldie Hawn vehicle, whereas Jonathan Demme was kind of going for a more of an ensemble piece. And you can clearly see that. There are, are some great performances in this movie. Kurt Russell is really good. Christine Lottie was nominated for this movie. But boy, is it about women 
banding together for empowerment during the war effort in 1940s? Is it about one woman trying to find her way uh, romantically now that her husband is out of the picture? I don't know what it's about. It's a mess. I actually tracked down a VHS rip of the Demi Cut. Evidently, there's no film elements. They can't go back and they can't put it back together. And so I watched it twice in the last couple of weeks. And my take on it is that we've exaggerated a bit the difference the Demi Cut makes. It is a different film somewhat, but the elements are the same. By focusing on one woman and what happens to her over the course of the war, it tells the larger story of how America leaned on women during the war and not only keep things going, but to rise to a very different industry to do things that they'd never been asked to do to prove that they could do every job a man did, do it well, do it well enough to win a war, and then when the men came home, be willing to give it all up. Well, let's just go back to the way things were. Someone out there needs to make a movie about the Rosie the Riveter iconic woman who went out and you know built our planes for us during the war. And, and this one seems to be half that, but mostly it just lingers back to Goldie Hawn involved in a fairly unengaging love triangle. That's the, the worst stuff in the movie. The worst stuff in the movie is when the love story kind of takes over and tries to dominate. Demi's trying to make the point that when men went away to war and the women were left behind and there were other people that were here, lives continued. Whether you like that or not, you can't put your life on, but nobody can but it does. It takes too much of the focus of the film. The best stuff in the movie is the supporting cast stuff. Holly Hunter shows up in the movie. Uh, a very, very young Holly Hunter is one of the women in the factory. And she has a couple of great moments. In the article, it, it is indicated that the Holly Hunter character was larger and a lot more impactful. And the same thing with Christine Lottie. And the same thing with just the factory itself. The factory was a larger character in the original Demi Cut. And it did a better job of demonstrating the way this community sort of snapped into focus, became this other thing, how hard it was to make it work at first, just how pissed men were at having to let these women into these spaces, and then how the moment they realized what we actually need in order to make this war work, all that had to take a back seat. You look at the murderer's row of people who worked on this screenplay. It's Nancy Dowd, Bo Goldman, and Ron Nyswainer, and Nancy Dowd alone is one of my favorite screenwriters. Bo Goldman is one of my favorite screenwriters. I wonder sometimes if you just get that much brain power throwing ideas at something, and maybe that's why it's hard to focus because you got all of this stuff that you put on the table. And if I were Jonathan Demme, I'd have a really hard time saying to Nancy Dowd or Bo Goldman, well, okay, that cut that idea or throw that idea. I mean, it's hard. And I think that, you know, sometimes that collaboration works and you find that, that focus and sometimes you don't. And swing shift to me in either cut that I watched felt like an almost felt like a movie where I get all the ideas and I get how much everybody threw at it, but I don't think it was ever quite there. Which story are we telling? Are we telling a story of these women or of this one woman? And the former is a lot more interesting than the latter. Uh, apparently Demi and Nancy Dowd, neither were happy with the final product and she took her name off it. Uh, it's actually credited to Rob Morton and Nancy Dowd is a phenomenal screenwriter. She wrote Slapshot and Coming Home. And still has plenty of good moments, thanks mainly to the actors and the production design. And Tak Fujimoto's photography, which is truly otherworldly great. He does a beautiful job. The factory alone, Tak Fujimoto, gets so beautiful and right, and it feels like World War II photography. I want to make sure to credit him before we move on. Yes.
And now, a ostensibly wacky British comedy, it's Privates on Parade. Ah, funny. Now, as you know, you're in line for an extra strike. Substantive, Sergeant. Oh, I ain't never gone in for promotion, sir. But leadership sometimes calls for special qualities of diplomacy. Tact. So, let's suppose you're faced with a tricky situation here and now. See how you'd cope. Sir. Let's imagine... Here's a platoon of squaddies, all lined up, and you've just received news from home that one man's mother has unexpectedly died. How'd you break it to him? And what's his name, sir? This was a movie that I chased around cable for about a year and a half before I finally videotaped it. It was one of those movies that I knew was out there. I knew it had John Cleese in it. I knew it had something to do vaguely with Monty Python in some way, and I wanted to see it. And so when I did finally see it, I really didn't know what to make of it. I had very little context for it. Uh, I will admit especially being a suburban straight kid in the mid-80s, this movie made no sense to me. Is the central joke of the movie that this troupe is almost entirely made up of homosexual men, uh, but but Cleese doesn't get it? Somewhat, but it's also, I think, drawing on the larger tradition. And this is something that then I had to, only comes from years of now being fascinated by British theater and British comedy. British theater was a haven for a lot of, uh, gay men because it gave them a place where their the things that were interesting to them were normalized and were an asset and were an advantage and so it's it's not that gay men made theater because they're gay it's that that world accepted them in a way that a lot of worlds didn't and this started as a live review it starts as it started as a live stage thing that was more like a drag review than it was a narrative or a play so it feels like it was meant as a showcase for a lot of English drag performers to have a loosely narrative-based show where they could come out and do nine or ten killer numbers. Yep, and in that regard, it's not an uh, it's not a, a bad film. It's fairly entertaining. Uh, aside from Cleese, a lot of the actors are quite good. Uh, and then in Act Three, it, it takes a really weird, kind of unearned, dark turn. And it doesn't really recover from it. Do you know what movie does this well? It's Good Morning Vietnam. You are in a war zone. You're in a place where there is war happening. But the movie really isn't a war movie until the war intrudes. And then that's what happens in Private Sun Parade. And this movie, when the war intrudes, the war intrudes so dramatically that it never, the film can't possibly sustain that yeah and it also has some plot turns that are just outright ugly and and i was just you know it threw me it, all right well we move on from a uh, comedy to a non-comedy because that's what we call a segue it's time for the debut of a very good filmmaker named penelope spheris the narrative debut by penelope spheris let's talk about suburbia meet the kids from suburbia there's jack wake up and smell the coffee man Sheila. Fast and my scars are ready. Joe. That could be there all your life. And Ethan. I feel kind of scared. A new movie about a new generation. Suburbia. Part of what makes this interesting is the fact that she is somebody who's coming from this uh, documentary background. She's somebody who has been around street kids and street musicians and punk musicians and who knows this world very, very well. 
And this is somewhere between a pure piece of fiction, a quasi-documentary in terms of casting. It reminds me of Wild Style in the sense that it feels like the, the scene itself drove, I have to make a movie. I know, I know exactly what you're saying is like, not all filmmakers get this freedom, but Spiris did here where it's, I can make what I want. I can hire the actors, even if they're not actors, just kids. It is a very, uh, in some ways, it's a, it's a conventional story. It's, if this was a, come out in the 1960s, it wouldn't be about uh, disaffected punks. It would be about juvenile delinquent bikers. This could be a 50s movie very, very easily. And I don't mean that as a knock. I mean that as it's kind of interesting and in that if you took this exact script, changed all punk to, you know, greasers. When you look at the punk shows in this, though, those are real punk shows. That's what it felt like. That's the... Well, I will take your word for it, but it certainly plays authentic. It does not play like uh, the, the somebody hired 50 extras to jump around. That, like, the stuff in suburbia looks like somebody who knew the punk scene, knew where to put a camera. And, and what I like about this movie, Corman backed her, too. This is another movie that wouldn't have gotten made without Roger Corman. There is a crazy scene at the beginning of this with a hitchhiker and a baby and a dog in a phone booth. And, oh, my God, you, you, you get to suburbia. and It's like, okay, wait a minute. What the hell movie am I watching? I think a lot of people's reaction to a movie like this is when you see a group or like a, a faction of people that you don't get and don't relate to, you instantly paint them as the villains. You shouldn't. Just like in The Outsiders, if you watch that movie and you were in your 50s, you'd be like, oh, those punks, they deserve whatever. No, watch it as if you were young again, and it will move you. It is a, it's a powerful little movie. I, I'm impressed by it. Very much about the family that you create when you're homeless and when you're on the street and the fact that a lot of times you have to rely on people that society has no use for, but you end up trusting each other. I really love the performance by Flea, who is very young here and who feels like a wild animal at times. Like, he really feels like, dude, anything could happen while he's on camera. It's it's an interesting, edgy performance. And all the kids feel very real. There's very, very young kids in the movie, and that's unsettling. Trigger warning if you are an animal lover. There's a storyline that's running throughout this, which is that there are wild dogs in this, this area. Uh, they are starting to attack kids. And so there's a sequence in the middle of the film where a bunch of rednecks show up with guns and they just start shooting dogs, wild dogs in this suburban neighborhood. And it was accomplished with tripwires. The ASPCA was furious with them because they did not speak to them ahead of time or clear the animal action. Uh, tripwires are profoundly unethical. So be aware there's some upsetting imagery. The dogs weren't hurt permanently, but it was certainly not a situation where it was done under any supervised or controlled. I was wondering about that myself. Yeah, it's tripwire stuff. It's upsetting. It really is. Drew, let's move on to a film in which the dog was probably treated pretty damn well. It's time for Up the Creek. This is the story of America's greatest intercollegiate rafting race featuring the nation's top teams. Washington Military Institute, the champions, the seasoned veterans of Ivy College, the heavily favored women's team from Vanity U, and Lepetamine University challenging for the first time. Before they reach the finish line, they'll be stoned, abandoned ship, bombed, and totally wasted. Get set to get wet. Up the Creek is a Frankenstein monster of uh, college comedies in which they literally get two Animal House cast members, a Porky's cast member, 
and they jam them all together and drop them into a raft race. I do not care for Up the Creek. And I, I watched it again just recently, and I find it less engaging now than I did uh, the last time I tried it, uh, which is to say not engaging at all. I know exactly what movies they wanted it to be like, and they certainly saw those movies. Are you done? I'm done. I like this movie. I know you do. Okay. You know what? Let's start with what I don't like. I don't like the sitcom-level score. Another thing I really don't like in the movie is that our anti-heroes, our slobby cadre of pals, are stalked and hunted by a, like, a commando-type psycho, as played by the unwatchable Blaine Novak, who we recently covered in... Stranger's Kiss. He is playing a cartoon to, like, 14 when he needs to play that cartoon to, like, 8. Hey, Scott. Yes. We're done with Stanford Sherman movies, so can he be my new enemy? Can Blaine Novak be my new enemy? No, because he's done, too. This is his last acting gig. Oh, god damn it. Well, not god damn it. Good, but uh, good riddance. Bye. Also, very bad. The material they give Stephen first, who plays Flounder in Animal House and is often the butt of fat jokes in that movie, but also is given several non-fat joke-related things to do that are slightly or very funny in Animal House. Here, he's asked to play one of these fat guys who barely even speaks and just mashes food into his mouth. All right, but what we do have is the charmless Dan Monahan from Porky's as the horny one, Stephen First as the fat one, Sandy Helberg from Hollywood Nights as the nerd who's actually a fairly funny actor, and we have the eminently likable Tim Madison as the world's oldest college senior who is tasked with winning a raft race for the slimy Lepetamine University by... His dean, John Hillerman from Magnum P.I., and he's told that if these four morons can win this raft race, they'll get degrees in anything they want. So in some ways, Armageddon is a remake of this movie. Anyway, (laughs) features a great performance from a dog uh, who does charades. It was shot by the DP of El Norte, Drew. He shot El Norte and then this. I have a problem with the level of writing in this where... They go to Lepetamine University, which is already a hat on a hat as a joke. Because Lepetamine is the guy that could talk out of his asshole by farting. So your university's already a joke name. And then you have people who show up to call it Lobotomy U. When you've already got a joke name, don't then have a joke nickname that you give it. It's already a joke on a joke on a joke. This is not Splash. This is not a ha-ha-ha funny movie. This is kind of a smirk and chuckle comedy. And when your first joke is, guy who talks out of his asshole, you, you, come on. <laughs> that to me, that I just, I, I'm, I'm glad you like it more than I did. I, uh, this revisit didn't do it any favors for me. Director Robert Butler would go on to win three Emmys and is one of the most prolific TV directors alive. So Now, Scott, you being a horror expert, I, I want to talk to you about the weird business decision that Paramount made in 1984 to just end the Friday the 13th series as we do our next film because it's crazy to me that they just called their shot and made Friday the 13th the final chapter. Jason is back three times before. Sorry to change your mind? You have felt the terror, known the madness, lived the horror, but this is the one you've been screaming for. Because Friday, April 13th, will be Jason's unlucky day. Friday the 13th, the final chapter. 
frankly, Drew, I'm, I'm really upset about this. I know that these films are not high art. I know that they're like often sloppily made and not well. Some of them have some pretty bad acting. Uh, and they're all kind of virtual remakes of the one before. But I kind of enjoy these movies. I, I like this stuff. And I'm really disappointed that Paramount, they, they kind of caved into pressure from the critics of the time, including Siskel and Ebert. And it was just considered like such a black mark on their name that even though each one made exponentially more than they cost, they were so ashamed, so they closed out the series with part four, the final chapter, and you know what? At least they sent it off on a relatively high note, because I didn't much care for part three at all, and I think that this final chapter is an improvement, so it's a bittersweet. I, I actually, I think this might be, you know what it feels like? It feels like they realize they're closing the series out. They're making the last one. They're going to get out of the slasher film business, and so... it You know, it opens with kind of a fun compilation, like greatest hits moments. And they went out strong. Like, it feels like they kill Jason decisively. They make the set up a great character to make sure that it's not just, okay, we're going to have some random kids. They really set up this great kid to go head to head with him, which I like. I like the fact that there's a, a strong, I like the supporting cast in this one. Um, young Crispin Glover is weird as shit. And the way he dances in this movie is crazy. Dances is fantastic. I still dance like that. And I think that he should give lessons. I, I also enjoyed the wonderfully non-obnoxious performance from Lawrence Deadfuck Monison, who we last saw in Last American Virgin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who's genuinely, he's, he's the right guy for this character. We got Peter Barton from Hell Knight, who doesn't not leave an impression before he gets his head crushed in a shower stall. Joe Zito would go on to direct Invasion USA, so you know he obviously did some great work here. And I think the gore in this one is they realize now what the formula is, which is when you do finally have the big gore moment, it needs to be the showcase moment. My favorite kill in this movie, you know who it is? It's Fackler from Police Academy. Yes. He's the doctor in the beginning. He gets, and he deserves it because he's so disrespectful to corpses. And boy, does he get a nasty kill. All kidding aside, it really does feel like out of the films that have come out in the series so far, this is the one where they really knew what they were doing as a series entry. Like, this is a Friday the 13th movie. I enjoyed it then. I saw it theatrically, and I remember people losing their goddamn minds for the last 15, 20 minutes of this movie. I believe this is the first one that I saw theatrically, and I would have been 12. Huge, huge audience responses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially the the slide shot at the end. We won't say what that is, but everyone knows what the slide is. At least they closed the franchise with a decent entry. I think fans will be pleased. And, you know, I'm sorry to see Friday the 13th go, but... Maybe sometime in the future they'll resurrect this series. Who knows? I'm with you. I'm with you. That's it's it's ripe. Um, hey, I am happy that we uh, kind of pushed this one off to the end because the last movie that we're going to talk about this this month is a uh, heartfelt, sincere little film that marked a uh, sea change for an actor that we've already talked about loving dearly. Let's let's get into Moscow on the Hudson. There was one thing the Soviet Union did not expect to export. I defect. Robin Williams in a film about cultural exchange. Everybody I meet from somewhere else. Foreign trade. Come back soon. Mutual understanding. When you speak English, the Jean Paul Turk. And a wonderful new word. Freedom. Moscow on the Hudson. Is America. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Moscow on the Hudson is about a Russian circus musician 
who with his uh, circus troupe travels to New York City for a performance and he decides whilst in Bloomingdale's on his last day in America that he's going to defect and he quickly becomes a local celebrity gains two quick friends in a security guard and a, uh, what is she, a perfume saleswoman? It basically is a newcomer's eye view of New York City circa 1984. The immigration process fascinates me in this country because it is it's a bit of an ordeal. It is not an easy thing to come here. They make you work for it. The journey that he takes is fascinating because, A, the glimpse of what life in Russia was like at the time was... A big deal for us, because I think we had been set up to think of the Russians as so other and so alien. It's uh, Russian people living in an oppressed state, standing in line for toilet paper, uh, constantly railing against the quote-unquote decadence of the USA. Is this an honest portrayal, or is this part and parcel of the cliches? Like the portrayal of America, I think it's honest and slightly heightened. Oh, Because I will say that Mazursky's script certainly does treat the Russian characters, even this, even the minor characters, like they, they're not caricatures. They're treated like real people. But think about the America that they're talking about in that first act and how different it is than the real America. And I think that that's, that's part of it is, you know, we have our image of them. They have our image of us. And a part of this movie is when he gets here, he is quickly disabused of the America that had been presented to them, not only by Russia, but by what they saw from America, the stolen glimpses of America they got in our media. The film feels a little bit formless in the second half. It doesn't get a lot of It, is, it is a Paul Mazursky film in which he just basically, Paul Mazursky wants to be, I think, Altman, a little more mainstream Altman is what I think Mazursky was going for. Yeah, and there's a shaggy sort of comedy that is, you know, when you talk about that genial sort of amiable thing where it's not really ha-ha funny, the biggest set piece in this movie is the actual defection, the one in Bloomingdale's, and there's a lot of moving parts, and that's the closest he comes to kind of staging a ha-ha funny sequence in the movie. If you were a Russian person, what would you think of Robin Williams' performance? I would think that he put a lot of time in, because he is nimble in the language, there's Stuff in this where he's playing with actual Russian actors, and there's a like a pretty decent smattering of Russian uh, cast in this. In the Russian sequences, he never misses a beat. He seems very comfortable, and there's even some loose kind of funny improv stuff uh, between him and his love interest where it, it feels like he's improvising a bit. You know, having just recently read Dave Itzkoff's terrific book, Robin, which goes through his entire career... Uh, this was an important performance for him. He, it was something that he was really dedicated to getting right, and he learned the language, and he wanted to get comfortable enough to speak on set to people between scenes and not just know his lines and not just phonetically have a handle on stuff. Uh, this showed not just that he could be funny, not just that he could be serious, but he could be versatile, like a chameleon. Cleavon Derricks is very good as his, uh, his buddy from the department store, and Maria Kachita Alonso's debut performance. And while she is great, I couldn't help but notice that for some bizarre reason, Mazursky cast her as Italian. When everything about Maria Kachita Alonso, her look, her face, her voice, everything is Latina. And it was distracting. I'm like, why does she have to be Italian? But no, it's it's a weird piece of casting. Hollywood, you know, clearly is making inroads to diversity now in terms of casting. And they're thinking about people in different ways. And they're realizing that there is a reductive nature to the way they handle diversity casting in the past, which was once you had a Latina working in the system, that was fine. You had one. And there was a long period of time where Elizabeth Pena and 
Maria Conchita Alonso and one or two other working actresses were very lonely. They got a lot of work because there weren't a lot of other people being given those opportunities. Sidebar, in, in the last 10 minutes, you mentioned Dave Itzkoff and Elizabeth Pena, both of whom I stayed with one year at a Sundance Lodge. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, A, definitely, I've not read it yet, but I'm certain it's excellent because Dave Itzkoff is a phenomenal writer. Check out his biography, Robin. Also, take a moment to honor the great Elizabeth Pena. Oh, yeah, who's a boss. A boss, Died period. a few years ago, and it broke my heart because she did spend one night in a separate room at our lodge at Sundance, and she made eggs for like six of us the next morning. And it, beyond just the thrill of meeting an actor who I really admired, she was just like everybody's mom. Elizabeth Pena was such a sweet lady. So, so yeah, Moscow on the Hudson, it's, it's a loose movie, but of the Mazursky 80s films, it's one of my favorites. I like the people in it so much, and even when it just kind of becomes this circle of a relationship that's not really going anywhere, I still enjoy a lot of the little moments between them. It goes to some fairly bittersweet places, and it really underlines that it doesn't feel like a sitcom. It feels like an honest comedy. Well, they're the, they're the first people he meets in America. That doesn't guarantee they're going to be his friends forever, and that's one of the things that when you're an immigrant and you, you get your feet under you in this community, a lot of times those first people that you met really aren't your closest friend or really have very little in common with you. But there's that one special thing, which is they helped you land. It's quietly funny and it's bittersweet. And it's probably one of Mazursky's very best films overall. Well, and that wraps up April of 1984. Drew, what do we got next month? Next time, it's considered a big part of the summer movie season these days, but things were still bleak in a month featuring a Judd Nelson comedy, a Peter Fonda adventure movie, and a Michael O'Keefe starring vehicle. Can Stephen King get a streak back on track? One of the most memorable trends of the decade begins. John Hughes drops a problematic classic, and Steven Spielberg breaks the rating system when we get to May of 1984. <laughs> 